You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to a Rooted Discussion edition of the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. It's been a while since we've had one of these. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. Welcome to episode 128. I and, updated uh, it. I actually you, put the right you number. Thank for, for setting me up for success because <laughs> I've uh, failed that episode number too many times. But we have a really, really cool discussion that we're going to have today. And it was kind of, I don't want to say it was a spur of the moment thing, but something that popped up in my inbox and was like, this is something we really need to talk about. So we get, we actually get, like, this is very topical right now, and is on a, on a lot of people's minds right now. Yeah. And we don't always get it that quickly. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to see that we're flexible enough to make this happen. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's uh, if you're interested in milkweed and monarchs and and all that kind of stuff, this is one you're definitely going to want to tune in for. But before we get into the meat of today's episode, uh, I do want to. Plug the one thing that we're only going to do one more time. This is the last time we're going to promote this until the next time we have a live show. But we have our live show. It's actually in two days. Yes. it's uh, Today is Friday. You're listening to this on a Friday. Sorry it's to our guests. It's, I know it's not actually Friday. But our, when people listen to this, For it's going to be Friday. Friday. It's Friday. So it's Friday. So you have Saturday to really prep yourself. And then Sunday, we're going to see you in North Bergen, New Jersey at James Braddock Park in the Nature's Park Cafe. I'm really excited to see the menu that they they created. Yeah, they created a menu just for the account. It is free to attend, but seats are limited, so you do have to click the link at the Native Plant Society uh, website to make sure that you reserve your tickets. Um, And it should be a great event. I did look, and it looks like it's supposed to – we're supposed to get some rain again. This was our only rain date, so I think this – So this is rain or shine this time. We're going to make it work. We're really excited to see everybody there. Uh, It's going to be a great event. I'm – Never been to this park, so I'm interested to see. It looks like a little green oasis in the middle of a, a city. So. It really does. I'm looking forward to it. So I'm excited. With that, like I said, we have a really cool episode today. So uh, Sharon and Amay, would you guys mind introducing yourselves so I don't have to leave out all your accomplishments that I'm sure you have many. So uh, Amay, why don't you go first? My name is Amay Code. Um, that's a lot of pressure. I don't know how many accomplishments <laughs> I have. I've never won a spelling bee. Um, There's still time. In, I came in fifth in a cross country race once. I was pretty proud that, of that's fifth. Pretty that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Right? That's right? impressive. <laughs> that's impressive. I'll take that. So, um, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. No, I'm the pesticide program director at the Xerces Society. I am so lucky to be working on invertebrate conservation. And my role there is to be working on the program. One of the big threats that our pollinators face, and so many invertebrates are pesticides. And so I get to work with a team of really brilliant people to try to shift the, these, the problems that we're seeing, reduce that risk, find solutions so that our pollinators, our children, all of us are not at risk from these chemicals. So that's what I do. Awesome. Sharon, how about you? My name is Sharon Salvaggio, and I'm a pesticide program specialist for the Xerces Society, and I help Ame do that work <laughs> that she just described. <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, 
And what are your accomplishments? Wait, I didn't hear. I I didn't get to hear yours. This woman hikes mountains, like serious mountains. (laughs) Well, I was I was remembering back to when I won a bingo contest once when I was eight years old. (laughs) Wait, wait, you're comparing my cross country race to your bingo? No, no, no. (laughs) So, and, and Sharon, where are you based out of? Um, I am located in the Portland, Oregon okay. area. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This has been home for me for quite a long time. Awesome. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So let's, before we, we kick in, I, I think it's good to start from the beginning and for the study that we're going to discuss, what inspired it to take place? What, what is the study? What was behind the scenes that, that made this happen? Yeah. Well, you guys know this, you know, because you're out there trying to get native plants in the ground. The, what we saw was a tremendous upsurge in pollinator gardening. It is so exciting. People want to make their homes, their neighborhoods, their farms, our world more pollinator friendly because of the declines that are out there. And at the same time, we're recognizing that some of the some ornamental plant production can have really significant pesticide use. Mm-hmm. And we actually were even getting anecdotal studies of people who they had milkweed in their yard and they, um, they didn't have enough milkweed and they had monarchs, larva, you know, caterpillars there. And so they went out and bought milkweed and then those caterpillars died. We wanted to understand what kind of toxicity, what sort of residues are on our plants so that we could find the solutions forward. What sort of risks are we looking at? in order to better understand. So we, across the country, in 15 different cities, 33 different stores, we went and bought milkweed plants and tested them for a large number of pesticides, actually over 90 different pesticides. And we can talk more about the full study. Mm -hmm. I don't want to take too much here. So, yeah. (laughs) But that was the impetus. Well, yeah, I guess we'll we'll get in the study more later, right? Yeah, that's the plan. Uh, Yeah, I, I hope so. <laughs> so we're going to go and talk about what the bocce tournament is coming up next week. Um, but so that was really interesting. And like uh, we mentioned in pre-show, we were seeing the press release that came out about this and the, some of the news outlets that picked up that press release really start to to pop up on Facebook a lot and some of these pollinator groups. It popped up in, in our group quite a bit. And um, instead of us... Doing uh, on our on our buzz episodes, we do uh, little current event breakdowns and using one of the articles about this and kind of breaking it down there. Uh, Sharon, you popped up in my email inbox, and I'm like, oh, she's sending me stuff about the study and a whole webinar that kind of break, breaks down what was going on. Um, and that's kind of how this ball got rolling. Said, so, hey, why don't we instead of doing spending ten minutes on this in as like a afterthought in one of our episodes. Why don't we make a whole episode about it? Because there is a lot of interest in what should we do? We know that there's pesticides in milkweed and it's affecting our, our caterpillars. What should we do about that? So um, I, I kind of have yeah. a question before we, we kick in. Um, were you aware like in, in prepping for this study or, or were you aware of any other studies that had kind of looked at this at the periphery or um, – had you noticed like the end consumer growing awareness? I, I really think that even in our industry, in the nursery industry, not so much the strictly native plant nursery but the regular ornamental nursery, they don't really have – they're growing for looks, not necessarily life mm-hmm. cycle uh, or food cycle. Um, 
did you see a growing awareness or, or had you seen any other studies that you could look at saying let's take this a step further or let's look at this a different way? Well, just so you know, um, I probably I'll be the one who's going to talk a little bit more about the study and the findings. And Sharon is the one on the ground really working on solutions. So mm-hmm. I'll, I might take a little bit more air space oh, yeah. at the beginning. And Sharon really has some deep knowledge about steps forward. Yep. Um, so absolutely, there were a few studies. Mostly people are focused when they think about pollinators are thinking about bees, right? They're thinking about nectar sources and pollen sources. Butterflies are really different, right? Butterflies, the caterpillars are going to be eating the leaves of plants. Sometimes sometimes people don't even realize that they've got butterflies, you know, caterpillars in their yard. They think they've got a pest species when it, actually they've got some beautiful butterfly that's just early in its life stage. So um, we wanted to find out more about what kind of contamination there would be on leaves of the host plants of butterflies Clearly, specifically looking at milkweed because of the the value of monarch and the declines that monarchs are experiencing. So, yes, there were some studies looking at like pollen and nectar in nursery plants. And there was some indication that there were some long lived systemic insecticides. Mm -hmm. We wanted to go a little broader beyond just looking at those those few insecticides to see kind of what are the suite of chemicals that we're dealing with in order to be able to figure out then again kind of what paths forward to reduce those chemical uses when we could. Yeah, and that's really important because being in the nursery industry, I go to all these nursery events, and when um, when the topic of uh, of Home Depot and then Lowe's stopping the use, or I shouldn't say stopping the use, not wanting new nicotinoid-treated plants to be sold in their stores came up, I'm hearing a lot of the nursery people saying, oh, well, there's been research that's been done that says that it's fine for the bees. Maybe you have to do it at a different time. And it was all not just even bee-related. All their stuff was basically honeybee-related. Um, so it was a, a single species of bee that they're saying, mm-hmm. because this is you can treat these plants in a way where this is fine, it must be fine for all pollinators. And uh, and I bought into some of that when I was hearing it. I was newer to the nursery industry at that, uh, that, that time. And, and, oh, yeah, this makes sense. And then really as I started digging more into it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is – I like to find things that kind of uh, disagree with my point of view sometimes to challenge it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this definitely doesn't make as much sense as, as people are making out of it. But, oh, Fran, you want to no, say I, I was going to say what's difficult for me on this topic is that the, the chemical industry is a billion-dollar business, right. and they're going to do research that, that benefits their point of view or sales. And with any science, sometimes science is science. It is what it is, mm-hmm. but you can interpret it different ways. And I find a lot of what comes out of the yeah. chemical companies are inter- interpreted in a way to for their product to be used mm-hmm. consistently. Mm-hmm. And, I, and you need an independent study like this that's, that doesn't have an interest other than the life cycle yeah. of these, these butterflies pollinators to kind of – shed some real life. So just even before going into it, have you received any pushback or any negative feedback from from this after it's been published? We have not okay. um, at this it's but it's really it's really early stages mm-hmm. and I think that you know, so we'll we'll see where that goes and I'm hoping that what we brought forward is not going to so much get negative pushback, but promote change. Yeah. Like you, you touched on this very quickly, Fran. You mentioned how 
ornamental industry, plants are sold to look beautiful. And so we all recognize part of why we went into this is not to point fingers. It was to see what does it mean that the average consumer equates something looks really beautiful and bright green and has no damage in quotes on it as perfect. And if something maybe has been nibbled all of a sudden, it's, it's harmful, it's bad, and they wouldn't want it. So what? It, so that's part of this whole piece as well. And we needed to shed light on that to also wake consumers up to our yeah. part of the, of the issue. Well, I'm, I'm um, glad you mentioned that because that was going to be a question of mine is when you, when you purchased the plants, was there that kind of thought put into it for the selection of something that looked perfect compared to something that maybe already looked eaten? So most of the plants that we bought, well, so – we bought both native milkweed and non-native milkweed okay. since people do use non-native milkweed as well. And actually our kind of baseline was the non-native tropical milkweed. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, we bought some native species as well. So um, no, we did not try to look for any particular okay. type. We just bought at every store. We bought grabbed yeah. five milkweed. And if we five, had two five. different species, we grabbed two different species, five of each. Five produced by the same nursery. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Yeah. So that we had at least five plants from that same nursery. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. And going to kind of what Fran and then Amay, what you had said is when this, when I first saw this study, I was like, oh man, I hope this isn't saying we've been doing all this stuff that's wrong. And it could be taken as someone who grows milkweed and, and, Obviously, we use some pesticides on it for certain things, and we've worked with Sharon on that, trying to refine what we're doing. But it's like, oh, this could be really bad. But then at the same time, I after I thought about it, I'm like, this is actually a good thing because it's teaching us what we probably shouldn't do and hopefully opening up what we should do. So, And I, I do want to say too, it's yeah. it, without, without shedding a negative light on anyone, it's difficult to grow plants. <laughs> it's yeah. not as easy, especially when you – Think of it growing more and making it scalable. It becomes more and more difficult because it's not a natural setting. It's a very unnatural setting. You're creating monocultures and blocks of plants and you're doing things. It's not the natural soils. It's There's nothing natural about it even though you try to make it natural. Like I understand the difficulty of trying to stay in business and do the right thing and produce a plant, but sometimes that – gets muddled with doing the right th- – why you're growing the plants and why it's important for these plants to exist. Exactly. I was just curious. Was it difficult to find nurseries that had milkweed? I, well, I want to tell you one other hidden risk sure. that you mentioned early, and then sure. I want to hand it over okay. to, um, to Sharon also talk about this. So you mentioned how hard it is and these hidden risks. So one of the things that we found in our study that surprised us was a real – almost across the board, have pretty intense fungicide contamination. Mm-hmm. Fungicides are often not really thought about with pollinators. Yep. Pollinators are like, well, it's an insecticides that are going to harm them. There's a whole suite of research that's now showing that fungicides can be of concern. Yet disease issues are huge in nurseries. We get that, that unnatural environment that we're putting them in in order to, be, to create these natural things. So knowing that, there's also a lot of sanitation and action that different people take that Pinelands is already taking and that others are moving into that we need to expand our understanding that these fungus, this fungicide contamination and levels that were potentially harmful were being found. How do we all step back and implement 
the sanitation and the disease prevention techniques that can minimize and lower that toxic load on those plants. So that's the kind, that's the reason we're the kind of reason that we wanted to undertake this mm-hmm. to find, to get to those sort of problems that we could then target and solve. Cause if you're, if you're yeah, using these, if you're, if you're using these, it's almost yeah. like I, I was thinking about it. Like you're producing these plants. If you use these chemicals, it's almost like supplying a mousetrap because, <laughs> because these pollinators are attracted to this only, only to do harm to them. And it's, how do you, how do you prevent that? But I'm sorry, I didn't so, mean to interrupt. I would say, and people are. We're looking. So that was one thing that that was a really hopeful message across the board. You know, 15 different states, 33 different stores. The contamination levels really ranged. We ranged from like only two chemicals and really low levels to up to like 28 chemicals on a single plant. Right. So what that means is people are kind of figuring it out. Hopefully, hopefully those plants, it wasn't just that they were on the edge and they didn't get sprayed and they meant to be, you know, <laughs> but it, so we need to dig in, in the, with those nurseries who are figuring out ways to, to keep those plants safe and low and, and healthy for those pollinators. And the, and so the solutions are there. Yeah. So may if you don't mind, you started to, and then we, we said we want to do some things first. Would you walk through some of how this study, like the procedures of this study, and then get into the results that you found. Yep. So um, I kind of already got a little bit of it, right? We, in in 15 different states, we had volunteers and staff members go in and collect um, milkweed. And then they cut these leaves. We sent them over to a lab at Cornell. And we, months later, we got our results back. We looked, they, at that lab, they were able to test for 91 different pesticides, not all of them are even registered in nurseries, and some of the pesticides that are used at nurseries were not able to be tested for because of what the lab's capabilities were. So it wasn't a perfect match of what might have been out there, but of the 90-plus chemicals, we found over 60 of them. It, it, overall, like, and it was a mix. So one thing that was interesting is that no one nursery was the same. Across the country, people have really different practices, use different chemicals um, and uh, different amounts, obviously, with the kind of loads we were finding. Uh, We found, as I mentioned, so on average, there are about 12 pesticides per plant. It could have been as low as two pesticides and as many as 28. Um, We also found, we compared those, we found that very few of the chemicals that we found only nine of them. So 15% of the chemicals actually had some level of toxicity so that we could rate what the risk was of this contamination. So we don't really, we can't, we have a hard time measuring how toxic things were because we don't have much data on it. Mm-hmm. But because even though with that tiny amount of data on only nine of the chemicals on 15%, we did find, like I mentioned, the fungicides, 38% of the milkweed had high enough levels of fungicides on them that they could have had sublethal harm to to monarch caterpillar. And so actually impacting their growth. So that was why we raised that issue. But it was very concerning that chemicals that were found pretty frequently, insecticides that were found frequently, and sometimes at really high levels, we didn't have tox data on. And if you compare it to like other insect toxicity, they probably were lethal levels, but we just don't know. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's what we found um, working with Cornell, working with the University of Nevada, Reno, and some ecologists there and mm-hmm. butterfly specialists. 
So, yeah. Sharon, what just did you want to add? Yeah, just to clarify on that, um, when Amaya is saying we didn't have tox data, she's talking about studies that specifically analyze the toxicity of these 61 different chemicals to monarch yeah. caterpillars. Yeah, we do have a lot of tox data for things like honeybee, but um, I think the sort of advance that this study made was in digging into um, what we could say about toxicity to monarch caterpillars. And unfortunately, because that base toxicity data isn't just out there in the scientific literature, uh, you know, we've got a lot of chemicals. We just didn't have any um, anything to compare it to. So we really don't know what the impact of those chemicals is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What were some of the most common species that you found across the country? I know uh, at these garden centers, I know you mentioned the, the non-native Asclepius uh, curasava. Was that more commonly found across the country? I, that's really my real question. I want you to say that that was more commonly found or if the native ones were more commonly found. No, it's you're totally right. Like, get that native milkweed out there on the on the shelves. You know, curassavica is not what we need to be having across the country. The same, yes, that is. I think for whatever reason, people that is kind of often what you would find. And we looked at. We did not really go. We didn't target natives, obviously, since you know. So we went to big box stores. We also went to smaller stores, and it was interesting that there was. Um, it was really hard to to say what was the driver of the chemicals that we found on the plants. Like it wasn't the size of the store. It wasn't the species of plant. You know, it wasn't if it was bought in the East or the West, like there wasn't any, there wasn't a lot that drove, you know, what would have explained that toxicity. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's a a good point because that was one of my follow-up questions was thinking of the non-native Asclepius curasavica versus some of the native ones were those just slammed with with pesticides where and maybe the same pesticides versus some of the native ones were not um but you answered it right there so oh where'd my question go i lost it friend <laughs> i know you have something to say so you can, you can i do well i were what were there anything in the results that surprised you did you find something that you weren't expecting to find or or something being used way more or, or even being used that you didn't think you would well, see i feel like i still even want to dig into it even after we've already published the data but um a couple of surprises um one was the was the fungicide that we found and that was that was a really i think it was a really as i mentioned kind of this hidden risk and those are important findings so that we can get to a solution. Um, the background levels, probably levels, pesticides that weren't sprayed on the plants that were probably just in the environment. You know, atrazine is an herbicide that's used. It's actually well known to be contaminant in the Midwest. We did end up seeing higher levels and more frequent atrazine in the Midwest. Is it because there are ba- a lot of background levels there? Um, but we were finding herbicides on these plants. And I don't think that, you know, we, we haven't dug in. Maybe it was a grass-specific herbicide that was being sprayed there to knock down. We, we don't know why, but it was probably a lot of these chemicals are just out there. Mm-hmm. But some of them were also clearly being sprayed on the plants at the levels that we were finding. There was another chemical that's a, a neonic replacement mm-hmm. that was on a couple of plants was found at just excessively high levels and Sharon has dug into that label and recognized that the label on the, of that chemical um, for some of the products isn't very clear and could actually allow a really high level mm-hmm. be, because they have both a pot specific and an acreage specific application rate, 
which is a bit mind boggling and confusing for anybody. Um, and then we found these really high levels of it. And we're like, there's another place where in regulation do we need to step back and reassess what these labels say so that we don't end up with these high levels on these plants. So couple of the fun. There's all kinds of neat findings in there I could dig into. And I, I can understand the difference in chemicals being used because there's a difference in environment that that these plants naturally occur. Do you have anything from a sm- swamp milkweed, which is an obligate, to a common milkweed or, or a butterfly milkweed, which is an upland plant? So you're you're really encountering the range of conditions that, that they survive in naturally that if the conditions aren't right – like neither of those are ideal to be grown in a nursery setting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. – Now, the, the fungicides are actually really – interesting to me and thinking about them how they can affect uh invertebrate life as well because that's something i don't think most people consider um from my short experience in the nursery field what i've seen is a lot of nurseries are being more deliberate and considerate with their insecticide use it's um a lot we shifted away from using the endocannabinoids once we found out that there's there's a lot of dangers to it but as Fran said, you can't get rid of it of insecticides completely. So we shifted to some things that uh, we were either told were lower impact or we felt were lower impact by reading the labels and, and finding that out. But across the board, with most nurseries I've talked to, they are religiously sp- spraying a fungicide. It is a very strict schedule because um, for as far as plant health, that's one of the bigger um, threats to plant health is uh, you can kind of cover up some cultural practices if you're overwatering, uh, if you have stuff that's too close together, if you're growing stuff and it's too shady. Well, you can spray it with fungicide and it'll clear up. It's kind of like just taking an antibiotic all the time just to say, yeah, you know what, it'll keep me healthy. And then with our goal of getting it out the door. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really consider that as being such a big threat to invertebrates, although I did find some other interesting studies unrelated to invertebrates, more related to humans with, with fungicides that I was going to share at the very <laughs> very end because it's not important to this. But, Sharon, I think that's where you took it from there, right? Once the study was kind of wrapped up, it was in your hands to kind of find out, well, what's what can we do with this information? Yeah, um, I, I think, you know, Tom said, you, you said, Tom, you know, um, this study can help teach us what we can do. Um, just going back a little bit to the chemicals that we saw, it was very interesting to see the huge variation between nurseries, yeah. not only in the number of chemicals, but whether certain chemicals were used. Also, you talked about the way in which nurseries had started to move away from neonics, and we didn't see a lot of neonics used on these plants, which was encouraging. We did see other insecticides that um, nurseries seemed to have shifted to um, some of them at pretty high levels. Um, one of them is called cyantronilipol. Another one's called flopyridifuone. We were definitely seeing those at some pretty high levels in a lot of nurseries um, from this study, which was definitely a concern. Even though we don't have those tox studies on monarchs, we do on, on bees. And although we weren't testing pollen and nectar, we were testing leaves, it was an indicator that there could be um, potential impacts to other insects such as bees from the practices that nurseries are using. Um, so, you know, we do think there's a lot that 
nurseries can do. We do know that some nurseries do have really um, exemplary practices. We've been talking to some of those nurseries, trying to find out, you know, what their practices are. And, you know, we're interested in holding up models for other nurseries, as well as consumers and buyers, too, because um, it, it's really kind of a triangle of, you know, actors here. It's those of us who buy plants. Mm-hmm. Um, it's those who, who sell the plants that others grow. And then it's those who grow plants. And sometimes those are all mixed up, right? We know yep. that there's a lot of growers who are also retailers and vice versa. And the buyers are not always clear either. There's small buyers like myself, just a, a home gardener, but there's large buyers, mm-hmm. um, including retailers in that, but also landscape designers who buy a lot of plants, installers, people who spec plants like cities, landscape mm-hmm. designers. Um, so we all have a role to play in thinking through this issue and trying to move toward good questions to ask, good consumer practices, as well as on the grower side, good growing practices. I, I think on the grower side, having been in the nursery industry for over 30 years, you know, a lot of the questions we ask today or a lot of the things we know today weren't even considered 30 years ago. And the practices that were used were based on yield, and I find that chemical use at a nursery is uh, indicative of the cultural practices from the ground up. So if you're doing the right things from the start, your chemical use is going to be less as you move forward. And and there's you know I, I think a Daryl Kabeski and and, mm-hmm. and Carrie at, at yep. Sunset Farmstead. Using organic practices and what they do, it makes a difference. Nurseries that tend to use more chemical, it's their practices that lead them to that. They they have to put a Band-Aid on the back end because there's problems throughout the growing process. And those processes to me are old processes. Like it's – you can't just plug one thing in and expect it to work. That snowballs when you do this. You have to change this. They have to change their whole system to make it work to do this, and they haven't figured out how to do it cost effectively. And I, I, I don't know if you feel the same way. That's just my observation. Thinking about it, as you were saying, some of this. I, I can't speak for the cost effectiveness of it. <laughs> Usually, I don't go into that with yeah. the growers that I talk to, but that's interesting to hear you say that. In terms of what you mentioned about the system as a whole. Um, what you're saying kind of validates something that that we we talk about, which is end of the pipe solutions. You know, like yeah. a lot of what we see coming out of extension is like mitigations, like use a little bit less. You know, don't spray while plants are in bloom. Mm-hmm. You know, don't use these systemics four weeks before you sell them, and and those are. There's, in, there's, those are good, right? Those are yeah. better than nothing. Yes. Those are, yeah. you know, good mitigations, but it does help a whole lot more to go back to those prevention practices, the mm-hmm. cultural methods, biological, mechanical, everything that you know everyone learns about with integrated pest management um, to help reduce the conditions that are conducive to pests in the first place. Yep. And when you look at like regenerative farming compared to regular agricultural farming that we see, there's a huge difference and it's it's the result of practice. It's just making it scalable to, you know, can 
could Sunset Farmstead take their nursery the way it works right now and scale that up 10 times the size? I, I'm sure it's a lot more difficult mm-hmm. to do that um, and and be sustainable. Yeah. And at, at some point, you, I'm sure everyone makes that decision. Am I letting good stand in the way of – or am I letting great stand in the way of good? Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's Is it better for me to do this and get more plants out there than not have them available at all? And I don't – I don't know. It's all, it, it, it poses so many other questions it's, that are good questions and, and questions that need to be asked. It is such a tricky balance. And um, I love that both, both of you, Tom and Fran, were talking about kind of root deep solutions. Mm-hmm. Why don't, you know, it was like, how much water does a plant get? What does this particular plant need? How much sunlight? You know, those are key questions that not even all nurseries are thinking about. So the fact that you're there is a huge part of responding to, as you said, we're not just putting a Band-Aid on at the end. We're looking to solve the root problems, not address the symptom. Because the pest oftentimes is the symptom of the problem. And, you know, granted, there's a reason that we take antibiotics when we need those antibiotics. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, but it's like, but we can't be dependent on them. We can't just pick them up. People all too often, they pick up that jug because it's so simple. When people say, mm-hmm. well, what's the alternative if I don't want to use imidacloprid, cyanotrinilopril, you know, insert chemical name here. What's the alternative? Well, what's your pest? What is the plant you're growing? Where are you? I mean, it's, it's like a mystery. You have to be, like to solve mysteries to really want to manage pests and reduce your pesticide use. And it can become fun. I think the two of you are going to dig it, and you already do. We can oh, tell yeah. you already are. That's why we're here. So thank you. Yeah. And it's um, a, a cultural thing because it's right? um it's I I've embraced a lot of this stuff, but uh but yeah. it, it's counter to what not just our nursery has been doing, but the nursery industry as a whole. So I haven't made a lot of friends. <laughs> I say, hey, we could, I know you've been having success with this in how we've been seeing things as a success in the past. We need to redefine success. Our plants need to be going out into an ecosystem and not just contributing to the beauty or the erosion control. They need to have full ecosystem function. That means they're food for larval hosts and food for anything, really. Um, and if you're putting down a, a neonic or other insecticides, it takes away from that. Um, Otherwise, why are you doing it? There's something already there that's not contributing yeah. to the food web. Why change it if you're just yeah. going to actually do more damage to the, <laughs> to, we, to the food yeah, web? Yeah, I, I get comments to this day saying, oh, it was a heck of a lot easier when we just used imidacloprid. Well, and I'm like, oh, yeah, it sure was, but it it wasn't having nearly the same benefit when it went out but, in the landscape. But I, I, well, and it's like, oh, yeah, it sure works, but it works for like that yeah. second. It doesn't really work or you wouldn't have to use it again, yep. right? And we yep. all know you kind of touched in on this where we've got all these amazing, you know, native and beneficial natural enemies that are out there. Mm-hmm. And when we use these chemicals, these hard options, we're knocking those down as well. And then the problem grows and i love that you guys were touching on that earlier as well well it's easy to keep doing i, I want positive peer pressure it made me <laughs> yeah. sad when you well. said that your peers don't like you we need to switch <laughs> yeah. that around so that, that like everyone's glomming on yeah, but, the pied piper <laughs> I, I i like to use an example something that tom did um here at the nursery and it's um we were looking for alternatives for peat moss mm-hmm. and there was a product that we were looking at that was a natural based solution and that product wasn't performing as well. But it wasn't that it didn't work or it wasn't the right product. You had to change your practices to fit around that product 
and then you could see the benefits. It wasn't just that this product's no good. It's this this product doesn't plug into the system that's here. How do you recreate a system that works for this product? Mm-hmm. Um, and we've noticed that with other nurseries too that have different soil mixtures and things like that. Mm-hmm. That just because you you take their soil and try it here doesn't mean it works for you because you have a different system. It's yeah. what's what do you have to do to make the right product work in what's the right system for for the right product and and sometimes that's more work than some people want to do or or more expensive than what someone wants to do but if you're doing it for the right thing you should be able to get the price you need to get for that product on the tail end and not everyone sees that value and that's that's where uh just bringing light to these and, and awareness makes a difference Kind of a lot like parenting, right? (laughs) (laughs) You might have to adjust your methods beyond what you taught and, you know, from child to child. Mm -hmm. Oh, I had to, I had to parent my children completely different (laughs) and that's challenging, but it was worth the effort to do it. Obviously you don't, you don't just say, I'm just not going to care about this child and let him go. He's, he's more trouble than what he's worth. You, you figure out what's worth to make both children successful yeah, so- the book said to do it this way how come i can't just do it that way yeah. why are there why are there other factors involved here? How come I can't just- <laughs> so, so sharon uh what have you guys been doing to get this information out to the public um and is there a desired uh demographic that you this is who you want to be reading this and um maybe you want different people to be reading it in different ways what are some of the methods you use to get it out there well, I think I'll say that we're just kind of beginning on that. Um, this study came out about a month and a half ago, I think. Xerxes put out a press release and some social media. Last week's webinar was our first real public um, event. But we're kind of hoping this winter to get in front of a number of audiences, both producer audiences. We'd really like to connect with the different nursery associations around the country and have an opportunity to present this study and talk to nursery growers and also buyers, um, both retailers and other kinds of buyers such as landscape designers. We're hoping to get in front of those audiences as well. And um, through a series of different webinars, presentation opportunities, that's one way in which we wanna get in front of those nursery audiences and sort of like the, the big plant buyer audience. For the Small, you know, consumers like home gardeners, we have good channels at Xerxes, and, but we also have partners that we work with um, who we, we ask and, you know, um, hope will carry this message um, to, to their audiences as well, different environmental groups and so on. Um, so those are a few of the ways that we're hoping to get this information out there. And kind of like you said at the beginning, um, it's kind of a time, timely, you know, uh, shortly after something like this drops, you know, there can be a lot of interest and we want to take advantage of that. Um, you know, the, we at Xerxes really have put a lot of faith and um, energy into those individual um, voluntary solutions over the years. You know, a lot of our work has been educating people about native insects, educating people about um, 
best management practices as individuals. We have, you know, sometimes looked into policy options and lent support for that. And in this case, we've tried to understand what are the root causes of, uh, you know, pesticides on nursery plants and tried to identify some of the places where there might potentially be policy solutions. Um, but at this point, we, we, we're still kind of evaluating and considering those within the larger context because you can't put into place, you know, a, a policy solution that is not going to work within the larger context. Just as an example, I am aware of there was a, a plant labeling initiative in Minnesota that passed, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. Well, it fell apart shortly after it passed. I don't know all the reasons for that, but it basically, you, you have to get the players in place for policy solutions. So we want to motivate people to take individual action, action as communities, nursery growers. You know, you talked about talking to other nursery growers and to the extent that growers themselves can carry this message amongst themselves, you know, that's more powerful than anything we can do. Um, and it's gratifying to see that people who are producing these plants are really thinking beyond just, you know, bees and also thinking about, uh, you know, just the importance of, of being um, friendly to the ecosystem as a whole. The monarch is obviously a really um, focal species for a lot of consumers, mm-hmm. um, even for regulators, because it's being considered with the Endangered Species Act to be listed mm-hmm. under that. Um, but, you know, it goes beyond that. This in some ways is kind of like a, a, a bellwether of what might be happening with our other native butterflies. Um, we, You know, milkweed is kind of specific to monarch, obviously, but a lot of the other native plants that are produced, at, you know, are really important to a lot of our other butterflies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need to be thinking about a, a, a broad suite of plants and a broad suite of insects when we when we think about the future. That, that's a really great point, Sharon, because I know nurseries out there that say, well, the milkweed is for the monarch, so I'm not going to treat that as extensively as I would other stuff. So while it's a really good indicator for this study because it's such a visible insect and so many people care about the monarch and the caterpillars, um, they might not care about the I'm trying to think of another butterfly off the top of my head, and I can't do it. It The swallowtails that need to feed off of a different plant and what they're treated with. Um, But so you're having other plants that are, in my opinion, um, at least what I've seen, people treat milkweed differently and try and treat or use uh, less pesticides on it because they think about the monarchs, but they aren't thinking about some of the other stuff. That's really important as there, well. There's so many things. I Like as I look at this, first of all, I want to point out that Sharon mentioned two key ingredients for the success of any restoration, let alone the survival of this, is education and stewardship because without those two components, you're not really going to have success. So for as much as we want the nurseries to take um, ownership and, and make these changes, if you have an educated public who are asking the right questions – or refuse to buy something that maybe isn't perfect, that will force the hand of some of these nurseries to change. One of the things that in in retrospect I would have liked to have known is when you bought the plants, if you would have asked it if they had been treated with neonics <laughs> ahead of time, 
to see how many responses were no, but how many came back as yes. You know, and it's it's really easy to to tell people what they want to hear, um, but but also walk the walk. Um, mm -hmm. You know, not to not, I'm not throwing any blame or any shade on anyone. Just saying that 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 happens. Unfortunately, that that's a reality that happens where it's like I don't, I don't, I don't. But you do, you mm -hmm. do use it. So it's. And sometimes you don't know you're using it. Right? Yeah. That was, that's oh, actually yeah. something that multiple folks at Xerces, because, you know, we're buying plants for restoration all the time. We buy them from you guys. And so we're chatting with you guys about your chemical use because, you know, we need it to be a native plant. We need certain, certain, all kind. we have all kinds of requirements, including what kind of pesticides, you know, we can yeah. be sure aren't on it. But we were are shocked at how many folks don't recognize imidacloprid as a neonic mm -hmm. or thymethoxam as a neonic. They're like, nope, don't use neonics. But when it comes right down to it, some of the labels they have, you pull it up and, and sure enough, they actually are neonics. Mm -hmm. It's just so complicated and it's no one's fault. It's that it's, it's a tough system and we got to figure it out. But, you know, one thing that Sharon didn't mention, I'm going to ask her to mention, right. she is doing this amazing work to find the success stories and, you know, what the things that, that folks are doing and hold them up, whether it be a consumer who's doing the right thing, a landscape designer, a nursery. And um, she's actually right now just is you know doing some interviews and working on a video to uplift some of the success stories. I don't know if you, I'd love to hear kind of some of your thinking on that, or I don't know. That's I would love to hear that yeah. too. I love the positive <laughs> side of this. Well, uh, yes, we've been I've been talking to a bunch of different nurseries and um, trying to better understand, you know, their practices and, and some of the good practices that are out there. And we do have this video in process. Um, it's probably going to be a few months before it's out. I actually don't really want to say a whole lot about it beyond that because... <laughs> Um, <laughs> there's a lot that goes into a video and then gets edited, edited down to oh, a yeah. very, very short thing. Um, Spoiler but, alert, amazed, terrible surprises. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we have tried to, um, you know, talk to a, a breadth of nurseries, growers who are producing very small, um, producing a lot of their own plants, but also buying in all the way up to a, a very large production nursery. Um, so we've, we've got, you know, some different, you know, scale there represented. Um, but to go back, Fran, to what you mentioned about um, the consumer, yeah. that is a piece that we've been working on now for, for a while. We, about a year and a half ago, we, we came up with this publication and, and released it called Buying Be Safe Plants. Mm -hmm. Okay. Awesome. And it's on our website. <laughs> and we directed this toward consumers. And we, um, we, 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 we sent the message that your consumer requests are really powerful. You have, you know, the ability to transform practices. And we know that this is true because looking back five, six years, when consumers across the country started to learn about neonics and ask for neonics-free plants. It actually worked. I mean, not entirely, but the nursery industry did shift. And that was pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing that Amé recognized, um, actually before we even had data, but you could tell from looking at extension literature and stuff like that, is that, and we had seen it before, is that when 
a, a particular sector learns that a pesticide is bad, they often shift to mm. other pesticides yeah. that you mentioned, I think, Tom, at the very beginning, you know, that we were told who we believed from reading the label would be safer. Mm-hmm. And we that did happen in the nursery industry. We saw that those shifts were happening. We looked into some of those chemicals and got kind of concerned about some additional chemicals. And we realized overall it really has to go beyond switching chemicals because mm-hmm. there's always going to be a new chemistry out there that the pesticide industry will come up with. Will it really be safer? Usually when a chemical is registered, we don't really know because while the, you know, Often it's it's said, oh, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions to register a pesticide. In reality, the studies that are done on native insects are very, very few. They mostly test on honeybees. A lot of times we don't know how the larvae are affected. We don't know how wild bees are affected. We don't know how other pollinators are affected, et cetera. Anyway, this all goes down to we broadened um, our message to consumers saying, all right, can you um, not just ask for new nick free, but ask for organic plants and seeds, knowing that this was going to be difficult because we know that there are so few organic native nurseries around and probably no native ornamental producers. Um, the, but that was our, our first recommendation. We broadened the list of chemicals that we asked people to watch out for. We added two insecticides to that, flopyrodifurone and cyanotrinolipol. And third, and probably the most important, but really the most difficult for the for the home gardener, for the sort of, you know, occasional dabbler in, in gardening, you know, someone like me, um, is shop at nurseries that practice pollinator-friendly pest management. And through that, there's a set of deeper questions that we ask consumers to ask for. We especially want large buyers, such as landscape designers, brokers, retailers, cities, and and these other large buyers to ask these questions. And of course, we want home gardeners to ask these questions too, but it takes more time and it takes more knowledge. So those the questions that we, we want people to ask to delve into what if you know what are their production practices? Are they pollinator friendly? Is what do they do for prevention? You know, you were talking about cultural practices, yep. sort of setting the stage to have lower pest pressure from the very beginning. So we ask them to ask about that. What are they doing for monitoring and scouting? Are they using pesticides before they've even sort of established that there's a problem that the pest pressure actually warrants mm-hmm. some kind of pesticide? Finally, if they do use pesticides, what are they using and how do they limit the harm through targeted use, timing, you know, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of described in this, in this fact sheet. And we put out a parallel one for nurseries themselves called Offering Be Safe Plants, mm-hmm. a guide for nurseries. And this goes into deeper, it's, it's a little bit more of a checklist um, in here. And Tom, I interviewed you for this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we utilized um, a photo that you provided from your practice. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. Of the scouting, of the scouting mm-hmm. yeah, that you have going on at your nursery. And um, so... These two publications have been very popular. Um, we continue to encourage people to use them. And um, this is, you know, part of what we're trying to do to sort of shift um, the understanding and increase the dialogue um, about plant production and, and buying 
pollinator safe plants. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we kind of stress to a lot of our listeners that if you're purchasing native plants, like I always recommend your local native plant grower. And I know they're harder to find, but most of the time you're dealing with the person who's growing the plants. You have the access to this information. You can go and see for yourself what they're doing, how they're doing it, and talk to the person that is doing it to kind of get the information you need and feel comfortable. Everyone wants to to purchase from someone they consider friendly or uh, mm-hmm. a, I don't want to say a friend, but someone that you feel comfortable with. Yes. Uh, you want it to be a good relationship both ways. Uh, you know, we all want good mm-hmm. customers, and uh, customers want to deal with someone they they feel is honest and and trustworthy. They, they enjoy dealing with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you're not going to get that at every place. You're just not not mm-hmm. not saying that you shouldn't buy plants from them. But if you crave that information, you can get it. You're going to have to dig a little deeper, drive a little further. Um, and and do a little research so that you mm-hmm. feel comfortable. Um, yeah. And I'm hoping that that this study gets people to do that more. Mm-hmm. Like I guess in in your eyes, where would you – how would you like to see this information utilized in, in a yeah. perfect world now that it's out there? What would you like to see happen now that this information exists? Well – Sharon and I, so we're all, we can see each other, so the mm. audience can't. So Sharon and I are both looking at each other. And he's first. Yeah. Um, so I think, well, one, as, as we mentioned before, everyone has a role to play. So going back to that consumer, um, I think really important, Sharon gave kind of the actions and questions and information to do, but recognizing if you're a consumer walking into a nursery, making sure that it's a respectful interaction, right? So you said that consumers want to have someone that's honest and trustworthy that they're going to talk to at a nursery. And, but they're also human, they're humans. And so we, and I've all too often heard when people are, people are angry and frustrated, can be angry and frustrated about pesticides and they come in and they have a demand (laughs) and this can't, this has to be a conversation. And so really I want consumers to come in and build a relationship and talk to their nursery. And it, and I think you're absolutely right. Oftentimes at that local small native plant nursery, you're going to have someone who's accessible and who's knowledgeable. And I think that is a, that is the perfect dialogue to start with. Um, the monitoring that you're already doing, like that's the kind of work that we want to see at those nurseries, taking those initial prevention and early intervention steps so that your pesticide use is going to be dropped dramatically. The toxic load you're putting on the environment is going to be way less because you know what's going on in your in your nursery and you're taking care of it before you end up really with concerns. Um, sure. And so it, there's kind of, there's a million ways, but I think it's a wake up call for all of us to seek solutions and know that we do need to make changes. Xerces ourselves, is, we're creating new uh, rules for our contract grows and we're willing to pay a premium to figure out how to make sure that the what we what we buy is going to be pollinator safe and hopefully that's also going to be informative so people are going to be growing differently and then over time maybe we're going to see that you know that snowball effect and people are going to from what we learn we're going to move on it yeah Yeah. if i could just add to that um i would say we want four things that one is safely pollinated plants at the time of purchase that's you know kind of the whole point of all this two a greater recognition that toxic effects go beyond bees in other words we need to think about this for butterflies we need to think about this really for all insects so this dialogue is really important between 
the nurseries, the wholesale production nurseries and their customers, the retailers, and then between the retailers and the the gardeners or the buyers. So this dialogue um, is a big piece of it because only through dialogue really does any change ever happen in human affairs, right? (laughs) Um, And so this is a really big piece. Um, And that's why I may say conversations. When we were working on these, you know, two years ago, I mean, the way I have it in my files is conversations with nurseries. That's the way I've always thought about it. It's got to be a conversation. Um, And the fourth thing, and this is really important, too, is that those large purchasers, whether they be retailers, landscape designers, landscape architects, cities, taking the opportunity to probe more deeply and adopt purchasing policies and requirements because we recognize that it's those large purchasers that can move the market um, more effectively perhaps than um, a a relatively disorganized group of home gardeners. Not that those (laughs) small home gardeners are not important. Mm -hmm. We all are and we we, we can have a lot of power, but those large purchasers have a specific really Mm -hmm. key role as well. So I'd say those are the four things that we really want to come out of this. the, The two of you have a really fantastic point because it's especially when you bring up paying a premium for for the right thing. I mean, money is a powerful conversation, right? It's that's if if you're a business and someone were to say, "I need to buy ten thousand plants." What are your practices? That doesn't fit within what we believe in, and we need to go elsewhere. That's a you know, if you hear that enough, <laughs> you're mm-hmm. going to make a change. Yeah. If you if you see what kind of business you're losing, so it's important to have these conversations. Otherwise, people are there's nothing worse than someone taking their business elsewhere, not knowing why you lost their business. Mm-hmm. Um, that information is important yeah. for anyone to grow and make change if they understand what it is they're losing. Mm-hmm. Sorry, and, and just to follow up on Fran's point, there's going to be people who, uh, when you have these conversations at your garden center or whatnot, they're going to be mad at you for bringing that up <laughs> that's just gonna happen but um but then you're also gonna have some that yeah they might be mad at the moment that you're you're critical that you're of what they're doing and then taking your business elsewhere but they're gonna think and say oh you know what maybe they have a point not everyone's like that and it seems like today in day and age no one wants to do that but there's still people out there that are like that and um and i felt uh, may when you were saying something earlier i felt bad i i giggled a little bit you're talking about People who are like demanding when they go in, and I've I've sure had some demanding customers <laughs> with my retail business, and uh, and it's funny how people get mad at you over certain things, but at the end of the day, I take it and say, well, you know what, that's something I really do need to consider. Um, I've heard now I've heard this this uh, particular request like six or seven times. Maybe I it's something we really need to think about and and challenge how we're doing things and and maybe do them a little bit different. Um, and that's another thing I. I want to make sure our listeners aren't confused and uh, and think that us as Pinelands Nursery, that we're doing all this already. Um, this has been a learning experience for us too. And uh, just even here, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's some things that they're talking about that we do, and maybe we really need to re- reassess here. Um, and we use fungicides on a we've, – we've extended that schedule actually because of this. So we're using them on a schedule, but it's not – 10 days or 14 days like it used to be it's pushed up like 21 or 28 but we still use them and there's insecticides that we still use uh because we haven't figured out those cultural practices on how to to make it so we don't need them well, yet. what's important and this is a conversation that tom and i have all the time like you're bleeding yeah. and your first instinct is to put a band-aid on it and your other instinct is how do i 
how do I figure out how not to get cut again <laughs> so that I'm bleeding? You can't do nothing yeah. or you bleed to death. So you, you tend to put the Band-Aid on first, mm-hmm. but it's important not to forget that other yeah. step. I use like the, how do the I, headache example. Yeah. I could I have, I have a headache every day. I can keep taking Advil and Tylenol, and, yeah. and but at some point i got to figure out why am I getting these headaches. And maybe it's I'm allergic to something or maybe I, I – have loud kids and <laughs> I'm trying to think of things. But you got to assess what's giving me these headaches. And it's the same thing in, with plants. You have to assess, well, why are we having these issues? Oh, we're having this kind of, if I top the root rot or we're having pythium root rot or, or all these different things. Well, are we overwatering? Is, is it overwatering? Yeah. Is it, what's the cultural thing? Because that means we have to use less chemical. And then it's also financially, there's a financial incentive there too. If we aren't putting down as much chemicals, these things aren't cheap. And we don't yeah. we don't like using using them. It's just you have to in a lot of senses. But I did want yeah. our listeners not to be confused and think, oh, we're doing everything that these guys are saying. We're in that same boat where we're learning and, and changing as we the go. The other thing I would like to say to, to listeners, yeah, I'm sorry, can. just real quick, is that yeah, don't assume the worst from also, yeah. from the person you're purchasing from. Don't go in with accusations, automatically assuming they're doing everything wrong and you're going to educate them. Do your research of who you're dealing with. Uh, be treat someone the, the same way you want to be treated. It's a conversation. It's not an accusation. So there there are a lot of people that you may not realize are doing the right thing that are actually doing the right thing. Have those conversations. People are willing to give you the information if you ask. Um, you know, everyone wants to be treated the same way. It goes both ways. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you you're, off. You're so right. No, I I was cutting you off. I got excited. And I, <laughs> what the heck was I going to say? <laughs> I don't even remember. Um, Come back to me. I was gonna. (laughs) What I was gonna follow up on is, as a someone who buys native plants, if I'm sitting at home and listening to this, or maybe I'm even taking a hike or or at my local garden center with my headphones in, and picking up that milkweed, and I'm starting to put it back down because I'm thinking this thing's got a ton of pesticides in it, and I'm gonna be killing all these monarchs at home. What should people be thinking about when we're talking about these plants and knowing that there is some pesticide contamination in them are you are you advising they put them down and not buy them or or what's the desired outcome that you want there i can answer that and i also did remember what i wanted to say so i'm going to answer that and i'll keep that in my head quickly you know you said you know i felt like it was like this confession hey we're doing a lot of stuff we're not doing all of it we're learning the, that I use the term hidden risks for a real reason. If you go to most fungicide labels, the vast majority of them are classified as practically non-toxic. Mm-hmm. They are allowed throughout bloom, you know, even though there's a number of different um, issues we're finding with pollinator and bees as well. So this is something that we are learning. This is something that we are evolving. And also there's not as much emphasis and research into what are the prevention techniques we need to be using? What are the non-chemical options that we have to be managing? There's a lot of research and energy put into what chemical should I be using and how? And so we're all, we, you know, the, there's a, there's a pressure on all of us to be like, we need to be funding the research in the background and to be able to know how to do this differently. So yeah, we are all learning. We don't get to be hard on each other as long as we're trying. There's- we're getting there's always a lot of money behind a, a product or a marketing behind a product. You can always find that information, but there's there's not going to be the same push behind how to not use a product. <laughs> my, uh, my neighbor, I, I, terribly, probably incorrect of me, 
She's like, you just, you know, that's why you got to find something mechanical. That's a cool tool. So the people, they don't have a product to spray, but they have like some funky, you know, machine that they can use. So it's still a toy. That's fun. There's some weeding nunchucks. Really correct. Sound cool. That's why I'm going to invent that. You know, and the, and the funny thing is it's never an easy answer. It's never don't use this, use that. It, it's really, it, 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 it's not, it's, you really have to look inward yeah. and figure out how do we, how do we change everything? That, that, yeah. When Shannon, Shannon was talking before, it reminded me of when when the, the neonicotinoids were first, like there was a lot of emphasis, hey, we're Home Depot and Lowe's aren't selling this, and a lot of our counterparts are selling to Home Depot and Lowe's, so they couldn't use neonics anymore. I was walking at an industry trade show and went to uh, one of these big pesticide manufacturers' booths, and just to see, they, it was funny because they had little stress ball bees they were mm-hmm. giving out, and I'm like, oh, this is kind of... <laughs> Ironic. counterintuitive <laughs> and, uh, and they're like marketing all this stuff as like be the bee friendly option and give pushing honeybees again and i was talking to a guy and he's like yeah realistically this is like our response to um them banning the nicknames but it's actually worse for the bees when you really boil it down to it i'm like and you have all this bee branded stuff everywhere i think i still have some on my desk it was <laughs> uh, maybe i gave it some fun i don't remember but it was like they were admitting it. Well, they're branding it as safer for bees, but then it, at least that salesperson was admitting, "Well, no, it's the, neo, the neonics were actually safer for bees than this is. Just you can't use neonics anymore. So this is what we're putting in its place." And I don't think they're always trying to be like irresponsible, um, but these best on manufacturers, I don't think they're. I think they're trying to do what's best for their customers and best for agriculture and the whole. They just don't have the same objectives as we do so yeah. yeah no you can see where the change and you we should get back to you buy you want to buy that plant yeah. and you want to be safe yeah. so yeah. i don't want to lose that but you're absolutely right it is hard people aren't necessarily trying to do something incorrect like organophosphates like the ddt or the mm-hmm. organochlorines like ddt were really long-lived so they created these organophosphates that were short-lived Part of the problem with the DDTs were like they were building up and they were, you know, they attract, they, and they were building up in species and causing harm. So then they, they changed to chemicals that didn't have that. Then we realized the serious harm that these organophosphates had. They're like, okay, let's find something else. Neonics, you know, they're systemic. You're not spraying them on. They're not going to be drifting necessarily, depending mm-hmm. on the application. They're inside the plant. They're not a problem. Well, darn it, they're still a problem because they're inside the plant and they're in the pollen and nectar. So, Sure, we are trying to, but you know, let's put some energy to these other alternatives. There's, and and it's tough on you guys when you don't have resources. You got a new pest; it's a problem. It's knocking down your the the species in your nursery. What are you going to do? And all that someone does is hand you a jug, and there's something else. Yes. So yes, we got to get back to the plant that we're going to buy. But share <laughs> and for this. Uh, yeah, just just to add to that, um, because we've been using metaphors as we go along, everything from headaches to band aids, and yeah. I want to talk about DDT just for a second here because, Amay, you brought it up, <laughs> but our study found that we had fungicides at levels that um, could pose what we call sublethal effects, and that what those sublethal effects were was impacts on. Um, when those larvae turn into adults, that when when the larvae are exposed to those fungicides, they have smaller wingspans, and this can potentially result in um, an issue for the ability to complete their migration. And so, a lot of people, when they think sublethal effects, it's like, well, it doesn't kill them. Do I really need to worry about that? 
And I think it's important to think back to DDT because what we know about DDT is that what finally resulted in DDT getting off the market is that DDT was causing eggshell thinning of raptors. And so this was a sublethal effect. It wasn't actually killing the raptors, but they could not complete the reproductive. Ultimately, it had a population level impact and cascaded into this wildlife crisis that all ended up. But so I just want people to know that when we say sublethal impact, it doesn't mean there's not a serious yeah. problem. Yep. We can remember back to DDT for that. I That's- sometimes try not to use the term, but then I like say, you know, they're like subtle and severe impacts, but then I'm being really vague. And <laughs> so thank you, Sharon. That's a really good mm-hmm. reminder yeah. that just because something doesn't kill an individual insect doesn't mean that there isn't a severe ramification that could lead. You know, when you're feeling sick, you're down and then you don't cook a good dinner and then your nutrition's mm-hmm. down. I mean, all these things are, you know, if a bee's out there and is their foraging level is down by 30%, that's 30% less food that they're bringing back to their nest. Mm-hmm. That's serious, you know. And I know in, I don't want to get this too far. We're already getting off track. This is, (laughs) this is typical Fran and Tom here. Um, Welcome to the podcast. But I know with (laughs) with other species, uh, I've heard with white-tailed deer, it's not necessarily the, the individual's uh, nutrition that leads to like thinking about deer and then big bucks with big antlers. It's not necessarily the, that deer's nutrition that makes them have a more impressive antler growth. It's actually the mother's nutrition. So it was when they were in utero and prior to, so their potential for antler growth and really just thriving overall is dictated by how uh, how nutritious the mother's diet when they were before they were born. So I, I I'm assuming that probably applies to a lot more animals and species than. Uh, than white-tailed deer. It's just they observed it in white-tailed deer. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I'm wondering if it – this is just something my wife and I would talk about the other day. I'm wondering if that applies to humans, if it applies to insects. I'm sh- like where else does that apply where it's not necessarily the individual and how much – well, they're eating it's Well, just look pants. at when they talk about the difference between breastfeeding and not for, for humans It's or how it affects IQ. Yeah. You know, it's – um. I the, the interesting thing is yeah. – Well, some of that's been debunked recently yeah. too. So – yeah, I, but uh, it's, it's but a, yeah. There's here's the thing. It's part of the conversation, yep, and yep. these are conversations we weren't having 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And people are asking the right questions. We're we're getting more and more. It's I don't want to say it's like the age of enlightenment, but it's people are opening their eyes a little bit and and having the conversation. Mm-hmm. And these are conversations like we weren't 30 years ago. We weren't having the conversation about invasives. Uh, you know, it's it's a learning process, and unfortunately. A lot you have to make mistakes and mess up to figure out what the right thing to do is. We've we figured out the wrong way to do a lot of things. <laughs> so, all right. so, all right, plants in my hand. I'm listening to the podcast and saying, "Ooh, should I actually buy this?" Amay, what do we? What do I do? Well, absolutely, we need more plants in the ground, right? We need to be. We need to have those conversations and recognize over time. We're going to work to shift our our production practices. But, you know, we have that plant in hand. We want to, and we want to minimize the potential that we're going to cause any harm to a bee or butterfly that's going to use that plant, right? So, you know, can you hold off before you plant it, maybe cover it, net it for a little while, net it the whole first year if you can. Mm -hmm. If you don't think you can net a small plant 
especially, you know, you could at least pull off the, the blooms on that plant, which would minimize the, you know, pollen and nectar and someone getting attracted to the pollen and nectar of it. Um, not deeply re- researched, but some of these chemicals, because they're either on the plant or they're inside the plant, heavy water, heavy watering of the plant can help move some of these chemicals away. Also, a lot of nurseries put granules or, or, or liquid into the soil. So the soil might be what's contaminated and it can still be uptaken. So it's so sad to say because I spend so much time in my backyard trying to create soil in my compost. But if, that, if you don't know how that plant was produced and you, have, and you haven't been informed about it, you might want to dump that soil as well so that any contamination of the soil wouldn't then continually contaminate that plant. So those are some steps to take and recognize that over time, that plant is going to add so much value. And then in the coming year, in the future years, you're going to be able to find those plants that also were grown in a more pollinator-friendly way. So um, removing the soil, lots of watering, netting the first year, or removing or removing the, uh, the flowers. Those are all things that make sense to do to minimize exposure mm-hmm. if you don't know how that plant was... I got a beautiful ceanothus for Mother's Day. I was not going to throw it away, right? It was so sweet. And so those are the steps that, that I took. And the bees, it's you know five, six years later now, the bees on it are just thrilled. Mm-hmm. I love it. That's fantastic advice. Yeah. And a lot of those I hadn't thought of. So that was yeah. thank you. Sharon, what are some of the things that you would do uh, when, when buying plants? Um, well, I would I would probably do a lot of what – Ame is suggesting. Um, I would just say that I do have concerns about dumping the soil. Of course, it would go into a landfill and probably be inaccessible. But one thing we know about some of these, especially these long-lived systemics, the you know water soluble, they can ultimately get into water systems, and we have some issues. So sometimes. Just thinking about where that soil is going. Oh, do you use a plastic bag? Do you put it in your garbage? <laughs> do you like try to bury it someplace? I mean, these are some of the things that just occur to me that there aren't any excellent solutions there, unfortunately, just because these pesticides, they move around, right? Um, so you can protect your plant that you bought specifically for pollinators. Sometimes if the soil is contaminated, it means that, you know, the contamination problem is going to move someplace else, which kind of goes back to even more reason to try to find, you know, plants that don't have toxic residues from the very get-go. I'm, I'm wondering yeah. if you can use native plants to fight or remediate some of that soil, something like iris versicolor or, or cattail to help remove some of that. I don't know. I, there's It's a really – there's a lot of, looks, you know, research into fungus and different plants, and depending on what a chemical needs or wants, what would be uptaken, it's another great place to to, to learn more. Um, for a while with the organochlorines like DDT, they were uh, growing pumpkins, and because the pumpkins, the DDT is – is fat loving mm-hmm. and so it would they would be drawn up and it would go into the seeds and they'd have to figure out what to do with the seeds because yeah. then the seeds were contaminated but even so they were pulling it out of these soils to clean mm-hmm. them up um, i think that probably native plants there's so much value to bringing in those native plants in and bringing in 
healthy soils into an area can help improve mm-hmm. and break down chemicals. That's a These whole other podcast. Yeah. yeah, that's a whole other podcast. Stephanie Christie, we've got we've got the right person for you to talk to. We've got a few <laughs> awesome healthy soils. So now now that this is out there, what's next? Where where do you go from here to expand upon this? Well, May is thinking I'll jump in with one thing. First of all, um, we could use more toxicity studies on monarchs, on different chemicals. We found that, you know, we have very few. And there's so much contamination out there. May did not mention it, but not just in nursery plants. We did a study um, on milkweeds that were um, growing wild in the Mm -hmm. Central Valley of California there was a t- lot of contamination on those plants as well. So um, monarchs are encountering milkweed that have been contaminated. It'd be, be really good to know more. So that's one thing I would suggest for the researchers out there. I, well, I'm glad that you were concrete because I was going like big picture, vague, beautiful images down the road. So I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> and then we can do some concretes. Um, I want each one of us to think about, you know, and that's everyone listening, please to think about, it's not a New Year's resolution because those are painful. What can I do to be part of the solution? How can I be that model that I want to hold up for what's good? You know, how can I reduce the toxic load on the environment? What steps can I take in my yard to create a haven that's going to be pesticide-free? So um, those are uh, each one of us think about what are the steps that we're going to take to be able to produce that toxic load and create those havens where we live and play and work. What? That's my- as, as Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in this world. Very nice. What yes. What's something positive that you can give to our listeners to walk away from today? Just something, and it doesn't have to necessarily be related to this. Just something like it that you may go through through your job, through what you've noticed? What's something positive that that you can just bestow on everyone to walk away from, uh, walk away with today? Well, I kind of, I spoke to the pollinator havens. I think the thing that's beautiful about, you know, pollinator conservation is how quickly it can happen and in such small scale. Mm -hmm. So, short amount of time, small amount of space, and you can create a haven for our native bees and butterflies. And so, you know, taking that time to create those spaces and then making sure to observe it. I love going out to my garden when I'm having a hard day, when the news comes in and there's another devastating piece of information out there, I go out to my garden and like right now it's the goldenrod, the last of the goldenrod still flowering. And sure enough, there are still a ton of, of bees and really amazing solitary wasps that are coming and visiting. So take the time to create those small havens. Or, and if you don't have the space for it, just but no matter what, go out and observe them. And it just gives you a little bit of faith in the future. So that's right. Sharon, how about you? Um, I would say choose native perennials and shrubs and trees whenever you can that have been produced in a pollinator-safe manner. And the reason I say this is because uh, hopefully you'll be able to use this interview um, to help you find safer plants. But when you're planting those long-lived species, even if you do have some contamination in the first year or two, 
you're not having to replant with another plant that's been grown at the nursery. Um, and I know you guys are nursery men, I'm sorry. <laughs> but having those, um, you know, those shrubs and those trees in particular that produce so many flowers, you know, per, per, per footprint of ground um, and can just keep attracting pollinators for years to come um, is just so beneficial. Um, so those native plants to your area that are pollinator plants to your area, think about the butterflies. That's what I would recommend. Awesome. Awesome. And, and, and just to go off topic for a question, it seems that unlike any other organization that we deal with, Xerxes finds like the perfect employees <laughs> and, and we have the same interaction with everyone that we meet from your organization. And I'm just curious how each of you, the path that led you to Xerxes. Um, Xerxes does have really amazing staff. When I started, I have to tell the story. I started and I was like, these people are so amazing. When are they going to realize that I don't deserve to be here? Like I kept waiting for it to drop. Like, wow, how did I get so lucky? Um, But, you know, for some reason, as a kid, I was definitely one of those kids that, you know, I collected earthworms and fireflies and cicadas and I loved bugs. Um, I love to squish the Japanese beetles on a raspberry bush. Should have been known that I was, you know, cultural control of a pest. (laughs) Somewhere in college, it grabbed me that I wanted to be part of reducing pesticide use and responding to the impacts that they cause. So um, that started in undergrad. I worked in the Peace Corps and continued to see concerns from pesticide use, went back to grad school in toxicology and environmental health. I knew I wanted to be part of pesticide use reduction. And when Xerxes advertised for their first pesticide-specific program staff member, I saw that advertisement and I said, I want to build this program. I want to be a part of responding to the pesticide aspect of the overarching harm that our pollinators and other invertebrates are facing. Because, And, and it, I haven't looked back. I'm thrilled by what I'm doing. Awesome. I love those stories. Oh, yeah. Sharon, how about you? Okay, well, um, you know, for me, it's always kind of been about nature um, in sort of a gestalt. I mean, I'm a person who likes to hike, and I like to move through nature probably even more than I like to observe the little things. I just like the feeling of being in nature, and that is what has been common, I think, throughout my life. And so I was a Girl Scout when I was a kid, and I've studied biology as a in college, and I ended up with um, the federal government, Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife Service eventually, um, and I ended up having to work on pesticide issues near the end of my federal career, and kind of, um, it just became really, really important to me, and um, I then moved to the nonprofit world. I actually took a maze job after she, at a different organization, <laughs> after, after she went to Xerxes, and I, I worked there and kind of, you know, got my, I don't know, what's the right term? <laughs> you know, you get your feet wet yeah. in pesticides yeah. and pesticide uh, reform. And, uh, you know, I sort of, I felt like I found my calling. And so when this position opened up a few years later, I applied and that's how I came to Xerxes. And yeah, it's been pretty fabulous to work with the other Xerxes staff because, 
you know, I've worked for some large organizations, you know, federal organizations. Um, you know, I worked for the state of California at one point, you know, I had a ton of jobs in my life, but um, I, I've just been so impressed with Cersei's staff because not only are they knowledgeable, um, they're so dedicated and um, it's just wonderful people. So it's been really, really great to land here and be part of this. That's one one thing we've noticed with everyone that we've talked through throughout the life of this podcast. If you're in this industry or this end of the industry, I've never heard anyone say, I think I really need to make a career change. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's everyone is really passionate about what they do and and the reasons that they do it. And that's it's hard not to be inspired by that, and this has been truly inspirational for me. I know I can speak for mm-hmm. Tom and say that yeah. for him as well, and and I can't thank the two of you enough for spending time with us today and talking about this because I love these conversations. This is what makes it all worthwhile, uh, and and these these conversations are important, and I know that our listeners will feel that same way. Um, but the most important question that we haven't asked yet that – Everyone has – it's the, the simplest in, in terms but the hardest to answer. What is your favorite native plant? I will go first <laughs> on this one. <laughs> I think you're being made to go first. Wow. My favorite <laughs> native plant is the yellow balsam root. I don't know if you all have it there on the East Coast, but it is a spectacular plant when it's in bloom out here. Um, I live close to the Columbia River Gorge, which is um, the Columbia River separates the states of Oregon and Washington, and it tends to be steep. And the balsam root grows on these steep slopes in the gorge where I like to go hiking. And I can send you some beautiful pictures of this in bloom. It is absolutely spectacular. It grows in these huge masses of yellow, large flowers, and it is just, I mean, to die for, absolutely. Um, I, I don't know if the pollinators love it. They swarm <laughs> it. In but I think it is. I think some people call it Oregon sunflower, but um, more commonly called yellow balsam root. It's Balsama Riza Sagittaria, I think is the, mm-hmm. the species name. I would love to see photos of that. I will send you. All right, perfect. <laughs> All right, it's you're on the clock. So I was that I was that terrible kindergartner who was like, I don't have a favorite color. I don't have a favorite animal. I <laughs> I, but I, I don't. I mean, what season is right now? You asked me that question now. And so to me, probably I'm, I'm looking out at the last of my ocean spray. So it's a California spirea. And, you know, it's got these the white, the white, beautiful flowers of kind of faded beige. And that's what I would add. Say now, if you ask me in the spring, it'd probably be like checker mallow. Um, and then you said balsam root. I love balsam root. I can't have one, but you know. But the one thing about ocean spray that's lovely is we've been talking about butterfly host plants, and ocean spray is a host plant for workwoods admiral for some swallowtail. So it's a plant that you want. I want to see that it's been eaten because if it's being eaten by caterpillars, that means I've got butterflies coming. (laughs) Fantastic (laughs) choices. Yeah. You you can never be wrong. There's never a wrong answer and we don't hold you to it. Mm -hmm. If if you come back on the podcast, we'll allow you to change your answer. (laughs) (laughs) So the last thing we do, I know we have like a lot of last things we do here, but the last, last thing we do is we give you each, uh, and then Fran and I do it too. We give you each uh, 30 seconds to a minute. Just, hey, 
plug something, promote something, you can throw out your Instagram handle. You can say something that you missed before. You really want to reiterate just one thing that you can sum up. You can do whatever you want. You have 30 seconds. <laughs> so, so Sharon, why don't we start with you and then, uh, then go to Amay. Um, I talked very briefly about large purchasers and, you know, purchasing policies. We have talked about this as a pledge um, and tried to fashion such a pledge. What would that pledge look like? What would be the parameters that people would um, basically adhere to? Um, We're not quite ready for that to be out public, and so I didn't say much about it. But I do think it's a really important piece of um, our work that I think at some level um, we all can and should be thinking about making a commitment to buying pollinator safe plants and growing pollinator safe plants. Exactly what the parameters are of that, you know, like I said, we're still working on that, but that is a piece of what we've been exploring that hopefully, you know, six months, a year from now, we'll be able to talk about a little bit more definitively. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, we're talking today about pesticides. Pesticides are an issue that raise hackles. They upset people. They get angry. They think they're the tool that they need for their business. They're the chemical that, you know, that caused harm and they're worried about their water quality, their children, their pollinators. And what we're asking is that we step away from the initial reaction that people have, whether you know, a needed tool or a toxic chemical and say, we need to come together and figure this out. We need to talk it through. We need to find the right solutions. Um, So let's not point fingers. We're all part of the problem. We're all part of the solution. And, um, and I just, yeah. And totally separate. I just want to thank you guys for having us come on and talk about this really difficult convert have this conversation and recognize that we don't yet have all the answers and we are kind of with our best intentions, muddling our way through this and, you know, doing a pretty good job. Thank you. Thank you. Tommy, you want me to go or I, you want to go? I can go. Cause okay. I'm going to probably say something dumb, but I'm, I'm hoping you just don't, you don't steal my final thought. Yeah. No, it's a, I'm, I can assure you I'm not. Um, no, it's, this is a really complex topic and it affects so many different aspects of life. And like I may just said, we don't have all the answers and we're learning more and more each day and, you can't make these broad and like sweeping changes all at once. It's got to be a little bit at a time, but I was really intrigued to hear about the fungicides. I hadn't really put it together that they were a risk, but in the back of my mind, I thought, yeah, you know what? They probably are a risk to other things. Cause I'd heard a report how they're a risk to humans. Um, because the, this use of agricultural fungicides is actually creating more resistant, uh, funguses and, when they do sports. So there's actually things that we as humans have to worry about, especially immunocompromised people where you have uh, antibiotic resistant funguses that are now you're breathing in, they're getting in your lungs. I know um, there's uh, doctors who are seeing way more. It used to be, you could go to the drugstore and get something off the, off the shelf and it would take care of it really quick. They're finding things where this is resistant. You got to hit it with something a little, a little heavier, both in all different uh, uh, health things. So it's something, it applies more to just insects. It's it's to everyone, and we don't have an alternative right now. But we are 
there's people working on these alternatives, and we have two of them right here. So, yeah, I'm, I'm I took I use more than thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's mine is is along the same lines, and you know, I was thinking about how complex some of these issues can be, and no one said it was going to be easy. No one said this was going to be the path that was going to be easily accessible. It's it's a lot of hard work, and and just you know, we we keep asking. Do what do what's right, not what's easy. It's going to take a little bit more question asking. It's going to take a little bit more work, but it is going to be the most rewarding <laughs> when it's done. And it, it takes balance. It's you know, it's it's figuring out. It's it's pretty easy to see when you see how out of whack everything is, how unbalanced. That it's going to take a it's going to take a lot of work to get everything balanced. And it's easy for me to say that with my inner Libra uh, <laughs> shining through. But you know, don't let it discourage you. Don't don't feel that all is lost. It it's going to take time. Keep plugging along. If we all do that, there will be rewards at the end. And and this we will see brighter days. It's not doomsday. These are just building blocks to building a better 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 way. Yeah. So and 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 keep it positive. Keep you know, keep moving forward. Yeah. So, well, that's going to wrap us up. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Sharon and Amay. Uh, for more information, you can visit their website, www.xerxes.org. We're going to take the link that, uh, that Sharon, if you don't mind, the link that you shared of the study and the press release and put it in the show notes for this episode as well. Um, so thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Health. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. We have to say thank you to Andor for contributing our uh, Rooted Discussion theme music. Make sure you stream or buy their music wherever you consume music. Uh, if you want to see them, live music's back, so make sure you see them live in and around the Philadelphia area. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery. You can follow us on Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet. And you can also check out our videos at YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz, and if we can't answer it, we'll phone a friend. And uh, thank you again, everyone that's a member of the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Uh, you've been very active and, and, and polite and kind, and we can't thank you enough. So. You can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplant.com. There's a little bar at the top. You click that. It takes you to our Teespring store. Uh, you can get phone cases, T-shirts, a whole bunch of different stuff up there. Haven't put the new designs up yet. This It's okay. coming. All right. Awesome. I can't wait. I feel like, what's it, George R.R. R. Martin talking about the dragons. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah, they're coming, and we are taking the profits we make off those shirts and we're giving them to organizations that we feel really deserve it. A lot of times the podcast guests that just really impressed us and said, you know what, the 500 bucks that we raise off these T-shirts, if we give it to them, it's going to go a long, long yeah. way. So uh, so you, you, get to, you get to wear a great message and spread the word and also help fantastic yeah, organizations. Yeah, and know that it's not a dime is going into Fran or, or Tom's pockets. It's mm -hmm. going to people who really need it when it comes to native plants. Um, you can also listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. But you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your your podcast. Uh, when you're there, if at all possible, leave a five-star review and hit subscribe. It goes a long, long way 
into uh, promoting this message and getting more people to hear about pesticides and milkweed and, and why we need to be thinking about these kind of things. So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Sharon and Amay, thank you so much for being a part of this today. We can't thank you enough for spending so much time with us uh, we really appreciate it. Coming up next week, we have a buzz episode, so make sure you tune in. Uh, and until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.